All right. We are in our third week of talking about what it means as a church to be on mission with God, to be about what he's about in the world. And last week, uh, in essence, I don't often say, hey, you should go back and listen to the podcast if you weren't here last week, but hey, you should go back and listen to the podcast if you weren't here last week. I think it's important part of us understanding what it is that, that uh, we're made to be as a church. And uh, the, the essential part for kind of stepping into this week is this understanding that uh, the mission of the church always has to be rooted in Jesus and joining him on the mission that he was on, that he is on in the world. And Jesus is the one who said both of these things that are on the screen. This text from John 3 that says that God loved the world so much that he came to save us to eternal life and that his mission wasn't to condemn the world, but to save the world through Jesus. He's also the one who painted a picture of a judgment at the end where these words are spoken to a group of people, that you're blessed by my father and you inherit the kingdom because I was hungry and you gave me food. So our mission as Jesus' church, as his people, is inclusive of both of these tasks, of both of these parts of our identity, who we are and what we do, that we share the good news, a, a real, not something that we run from, this real message that real life is found in Jesus and is not found apart from him, and that um, Jesus... Uh, feeds the hungry, and he gives water to the thirsty, and he clothes the poor, and he welcomes the stranger, and he goes and visits the prisoner. And if we're with him, we do those same kinds of things. Both are part of our mission, both are part of what Jesus is up to and, and therefore what we're up to. And I think sometimes we struggle to figure out how to balance those two things, how to sort of shove them into the same mission. They, and some of that is just because they feel like very different tasks, to us, and some of that is because of the history of what the church has done, and either grabbing onto one or the other, and so now we feel like we're trying to integrate two things that have been done really separately. And I think um, all of that is a result of uh, what is often true for us in the church: is we have an impoverished sense of the big picture of God's mission of what God is actually doing in the world, and so how those two tasks fit into it really logically together, um, and then how we fit into those tasks, those, those parts of the mission. So here's what I want to do for the next two weeks. I want to talk about the reality of the new creation. So tonight, we're gonna, I'm going to kind of def define what that is. Uh, this reality that God is bringing, into be, is bringing into being a new creation and that we, in our time as, that, that we're given here on earth, are living toward that new creation. And then next week, we'll get in more detail into what it looks like for us to build for that new creation, to actually do things, to actually live in such a way that we are alongside God through his power, building for his new creation. But tonight I want to focus on what does that even mean? That, that this bigger picture of God's mission is that he's bringing about a new creation. So I want to start where we ended last week in Colossians 1. And this is, I, I have it formatted a little differently this week. 
um, because this is, in the context of the scriptures, is actually a poem or a song of some sort. And it says this, He is the image of God, the invisible one, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in the heavens and here on the earth, things we can see and things we cannot, thrones and lordships and rulers and powers. All things were created both through him and for him. And he is a head prior to all else, and in him all things hold together. And he himself is supreme, the head, over the body, the church. He is the start of it all, firstborn from the realms of the dead, so in all things he might be the chief. For in him all the fullness was glad to dwell, and through him to reconcile all to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, yes, things on earth, and also things in the heaven, in the heavens. The mission of God here in Jesus, as this poem, as this text from the scriptures tells us, is not just about saving individuals. And I mean that in, in, in both senses that we understand the word salvation, understand the idea of saving. The mission of Jesus is not just about saving individual people so that they can get into heaven. It's also just not just about saving individual people from their current difficult circumstances, hunger, thirst, prison, whatever. It's about reconciling all things, the scriptures tell us here. All things in heaven and all things on the earth are reconciled through the cross. That Jesus is making peace through the cross for all things on earth and heaven. These are big ideas. And what we're going to try to do is get our head around what this means, what it looks like, what to expect as a result of Jesus doing this. So what I want to do is start with that big picture, the, the whole of new creation, um, creation originally, and then new creation through, through Jesus, and then understand, given that that's what's going on in the big picture, where do we individually, as, as individual humans, as an individual church body, as the church as a whole fit into that. Uh, to, I think first, to better understand this idea of God reconciling creation through Jesus, of, of God taking what we all would admit is broken in the world. None of us would look around at the world, at creation, at our lives, and say, everything's just fine. Everything's going as it should be. There's no need for modification. Everybody, I think, agrees that there's something wrong, that there's something cracked, that there's something that we need to be working toward or hoping for some kind of fix uh, for in the world. And so uh, I want to look at two things that we, we the world, and, and I, I, try, I try to be careful in using terminology like what the world tells you because that means a lot of different things. But two, just common beliefs in the world around us about how we're going to get out of whatever mess it is we identify that we're in individually or as a collective humanity. How are we going to move from that place to a better place? Two things that are very common to believe, for us to believe, for us to grab onto because they're common beliefs in the world around us that the Bible does not teach about how creation is going to become new again. The first of those two things is the myth of progress. And I should say uh, that this week and next week both uh, are heavily influenced by a book I read about 10 years, nine or 10 years ago uh, by N.T. Wright um, called, uh, it just left my brain, Surprised by Hope, thank you, <laughs> um, that 
that I think does a really great job of encapsulating. There's a lot more in what he's written than what you're going to get from me in the next two weeks. Uh, but you're going to get some from me of what I've learned from those two books, including these two things. Um, the first thing that is a common belief is that, uh, that we as a people are going to gradually progress into the people that we're supposed to be. If we'll just, if we'll just do the right things in the right order, we're all going to get on the right course and eventually things are, are going to fix themselves. And if we start digging around uh, for evidence of that, it's hard to come by. Politically, history doesn't demonstrate this to be true. Um, it, it, uh, if you look at, at our political history in this country, if you look at, our at the political history of people as a whole, there's this sense that we are going to, the more we try, the more we learn, the more we work together, the more we vote right, we're going to eventually get to political solutions to problems. And if there was ever a year that I didn't need to elaborate on the fact that that has not proven to be true in our political solutions to our problems, it's 2017, right? So somebody say that they were just going to, for Halloween, just going to wear a trash bag and label it 2017 and say that that was <laughs> their costume. We aren't getting there politically. This myth that we can get there politically is a myth. It doesn't mean that there isn't good that can be done politically. It means the idea that we can, by those kinds of means and solutions, get to the core of what's wrong and really become the people that we were made to be, it's just not true. It's not ever going to happen. And when we discover that it's not happening, we, we sort of lose hope in the process, but we're so committed to the process that, that then that's where we get things like spin and hype. We get a political, a political entity or a political force that knows it can't solve the problem, just trying to convince you that it might so that you will give it power. And that's, that's the world we live in right now. Um, and so without real tangible hope, we just start appealing to people's feelings and try to pull them in that way. Historically, we've been pursuing a sort of utopian dream of humanity that's really a parody of the Christian vision of hope. Um, it's, it's, it all it grabs onto good things. Nothing I'm going to list here is a bad thing. It's all good stuff. Education, hard work, science, technology, spending our money differently. And we think if we can just get the right combination of those things, uh, it's going to set things right, that we're going to achieve the goals of progress and goodness that we should achieve. The Christian worldview demands that some sort of otherworldly force intervenes to set things right. In our case, it's grace. It demands that grace comes in and uh, is necessary for all of those things that are broken and for all of the creation that was good in, when it was created um, to become new again. And that grace and, and the work of Jesus on the cross are the only vehicles toward real life and real hope that will last. Everything else will be temporary. Um, and this politically driven utopia or money driven utopia is never coming. And the fatal flaw of both the secular efforts to get us to this kind of progress and the religious, the Christian efforts to get us to gradually progress to a better future is that neither one of them without the cross, without Jesus intervening, 
can deal with or overcome evil. Evil always lurks unless something really deals with it. Political progress has never been able to subdue the evils that plague our society. And more often, the, 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 pro, the progression of politics shows that all of our politicians and our political forces uh, exacerbate a lot of those evils or become participants in those evils. And a purely social gospel, a gospel that doesn't find need for the supernatural work of the cross and just says, if we'll just live like Jesus, everything will be okay, can never do enough can never do enough good to eradicate poverty or free every slave or rescue every abused child or deal with the evil that, that lives in me, that causes me to, to live for myself, ultimately. Um, it's right to do all of those things, but some kind of radical intervention, some kind of new reality, some kind of new creation is missing and is necessary, okay? That's the first thing that the world will, will kind of lull us into believing, that we, if we do all the right things, eventually progress will get us where we need to get. Second thing, which the church has happily bought into uh, for a lot of its the last uh, 50 years and certainly beyond, is the idea that this miserable world is not our home and Godspeed the day when it all burns up and we're all free of it, right? Um, this suggests that the physical world and all of its parts are at worst evil and at best inferior to the spiritual reality that's coming when we all leave here and go to heaven. Um, this, is, this idea, though it has become very normal in a lot of the evangelical church, comes more, if you really go and do the study on it, comes more from Greek philosophy than, than from the Bible. Uh, it's really at the core of Gnosticism, which I'm not going to get too far off into that, but which the Orthodox Church has considered heresy from the very beginning. Um, the, and that's the idea that the physical world and all of its happenings and our bodies, our physical bodies, that all of that is evil and uh, at, at best uh, is irrelevant to what God is really about who God really is. And none of that is in line with the teaching of the scriptures. The, uh, this, this manifests itself, I think, in our midst most clearly uh, in this broad assumption that the purpose of being a Christian, the sole purpose, or even like 60% of the purpose of being a Christian is uh, to go to heaven when you die. There are other things that come with being a Christian, but the, the, the primary purpose of being a Christian is to go to heaven when you die. That's loaded with this assumption that our physical bodies, our physical lives, and the physical world that we live in are irrelevant. They don't matter in, in the big scheme of things. Uh, that, that makes us live like this life is just secondary. We can kind of do what we want as long as we don't misbehave too much because we're assured that we'll go to heaven when we die. And this results in all kinds of uh, big, obvious, and little, subtle things that get us off track from the gospel. Uh, you get theologies like hyper-Calvinism, which say God's going to decide who goes to heaven and hell, and so it really doesn't matter what we do. You get uh, ecological abuse. It doesn't matter how we treat the earth because it's all going to burn someday anyway. The physical world is irrelevant. All that's relevant to God is our spiritual life, our souls. Uh, you get indifference to injustice and suffering. Uh, 
You get people walking away. What we talked about last week was this holistic picture of the gospel that's inclusive of both of those ideas that Jesus said that we had on the screen at the beginning. You get people walking away uh, from the real gospel towards some very narrow idea of the gospel, which creates this category of there are these super spiritual things that are meant for Christians to do and everything else is irrelevant. Uh, so you either embrace, you go to one extreme or the other, like we talked about last week. You embrace the Great Commission and say, we're all here to make sure as many souls get into heaven as possible, and you exclude from your life the Great Commandments, which, great commandment, which says that, that the most important thing is for you to love God and love other people in the way that you would love yourself, or vice versa. You embrace the second, and you exclude the first. None of that is what the scripture teaches. Romans 8, Paul says it this way. Yes, creation itself is on tiptoe with expectation, eagerly awaiting the moment when God's children will be revealed. Creation, you see, this is, the, this is what God created and said was good. Creation, you see, was subjected to pointless futility, not of its own volition, but because of the one who placed it in this subjection in the hope that the creation itself would be freed from its slavery to decay, to enjoy the freedom that comes when God's children are glorified. Let me explain. We know the entire creation is groaning together and going through labor pains together up until the present time. Not only so, we too, who have the first fruits of the Spirit's life within us, are groaning within ourselves as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our body. We were saved, you see, in hope. But hope isn't hope if you can see it. Who hopes for what they can see? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it eagerly, but also patiently. So, if those two things aren't what, what, what's actually happening, that we're eventually going to progress where we need to be, or... The, we're just living through, we're just enduring what we get here in the physical world until it all burns and we're all in heaven. What is happening? Paul gives us this picture here in Romans 8 that what was good has become broken and lives in this cycle of futility, but it's anticipating something. It's anticipating a new birth where it will be actually redeemed. It will be made whole. The, the creation itself, the physical creation, our physical bodies will experience some kind of new birth, new creation, some kind of redemption. The early church believed um, neither of those myths. They didn't, they didn't buy the myth of progress. They didn't believe that what they were living through in this world was irrelevant and that they were just going to escape to heaven someday. They believed and this is the core of, of where we really begin to understand new creation. They believed that God was going to do for them and for all of creation what he had done for Jesus. Jesus' physical body had died and God had raised it back. His physical body. Jesus, remember, Jesus didn't reappear as a ghost when he was resurrected. His physical body was resurrected. And the early church believed, and the Bible teaches, that what God did for Jesus, he's going to do for us, for all of his physical creation. In that time and place, no one expected the Messiah to die. They were waiting for the, the Jews were waiting for a Messiah, but they expected him to come and be this supernatural being that, that lived 
forever. No one expected his death, certainly not three years into to his sort of being revealed in, in the public. And many Jews at the time that Jesus was crucified and died saw that as proof that this was all just a joke, that he wasn't the Messiah. But when the resurrection came, it became the real hope of the early church. It became proof that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So from that historical moment came this important early Christian concept that is crucial to us too and guides this whole conversation about new creation. This reality that Jesus conquered real death, really conquered death, led to the conviction that Jesus is Lord, that he is Lord of the creation, and Caesar is not. At that time, Caesar had the most power. Um, and the early Christians began to believe that Jesus was actually the Messiah, that he was Lord after the resurrection. And there's nothing more disempowering to the empires of the world, to the forces of the world, which depend on death and the threat of death to keep their power. Any real like worldly power has to at some point have you fear that they can take your life for, them, for it to maintain power inevitably. There's nothing more disempowering to that than a group of people who are convinced that even death can't contain them, right? So this is what happens in the early church. The powers of the world are no longer a threat to them because death is no longer a threat to them because they believe that Jesus will do for them what God did in Jesus through the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus and ultimately the resurrection of, of his people strips the principalities and the powers of this world of their real power over us. This enables us to live differently to think differently. It declares that Jesus is king and all their powers are pretenders. And this is one of the many reasons that I think it's important for us to do what we're doing tonight, to have a basic sense of what's coming for us and for the kingdom of God. It gives us our bearings in a world that appears to be run by all other kinds of kings and powers that threaten us, that seem to have control over our lives. It allows us to understand our destiny in Jesus and then his kingdom begins to define how we live in the present. Um, and it, it requires from us, it calls us to a new way of living as we have eyes to see. This will change the way we see what's happening in the world around us and what we're expecting to happen next when we begin to have eyes to see new creation actually coming to life and ears to hear the call of the king of new creation. Wright explains it. Uh, the importance of the resurrection in understanding the new creation this way. This is the point where believing in the resurrection of Jesus suddenly ceases to be a matter of inquiring about an odd event in the first century and becomes a matter of rediscovering hope in the 21st century. Hope is what you get when you suddenly realize that a different worldview is possible, a worldview in which the rich, the powerful, and the unscrupulous do not, after all, have the last word. The same worldview shift that is demanded by the resurrection of Jesus is the shift that will enable us to transform the world. Understanding what really happens in the resurrection is what enables us to see and understand new creation and to live for it and not be afraid to live for it. So I think uh, the central point of Christian hope is what God the creator did in and for Jesus 
particularly in the resurrection, he will do for the whole world, for his entire creation, for all of its history, for our lives, for our bodies, for the world around us. Wright, in in Surprised by Hope, Wright um, points out three themes of the scripture that I think kind of frame this this future hope. And I want to talk about these three real briefly, and then we're going to look at a, a handful of scriptures that flesh this out. And we'll be done. The first is this, uh, this theme in, in Scripture of the goodness of God's creation. The creation, the world that we live in, our bodies that we're born into, even now, all of that is good. All of that is made by God. It's given to us by God. And our tendency to long, just to, to just want an escape from all of this, um, or to even want to see it all destroyed is a problem if, if it's true that God made it and it's good. Creation was designed to reflect God. We know that we're designed to bear his image. Genesis to Jesus speaking to Romans 1 tell us that we're made to bear his image. Uh, and Romans 1 and other passages tell us that the whole creation was made to point to God. The creation is good, not evil. Second theme uh, to understand is the nature of evil. Evil, we talked some about this last week, but evil is real and it's powerful. But the natural creative, we've got this false association of anything that's physical with evil. The natural created world isn't evil because it's created or because it's physical. It's not even evil because it's temporary. I think sometimes we make that that wrong connection, that eh, it's not going to last, so it can't really be good. We're not evil because our bodies are broken or because they will die. That's not the essence of what makes something evil. It's physicality. The temporary nature of creation and of our bodies uh, is part of God's world that we're living in. We are a transient sort of pointer to this ultimate reality. The existing creation, it's not final. It's not as it will be, but it will give birth to the new creation. It has a place in God's new creation. Third theme, the plan of redemption. Redemption, um, and this is one of our big misunderstandings, redemption doesn't mean destroying what exists and starting over. There are other words for that kind of overhaul. Redemption is not destroying what is to, to give us something completely different. It means freeing what is, freeing what has been enslaved, what has been taken captive in some way. It's liberation, it's not obliteration. There's a difference. God's plan is to redeem us and to redeem his creation from brokenness and from sin, not from physicality. We're not going to be redeemed from having physical bodies. We're going to be redeemed from the sinful brokenness in our bodies. And if sin is the prison, redemption from it actually calls for a new life within that same realm, the, the physical realm within our bodies, not just good treatment of our souls and kind of handing all the physical over to sin and death. That's not what the scriptures tell us is going to happen. And I think all of this is kind of the point of what we see in, in, in this passage in Colossians 1 that we started with. For in Jesus, all the fullness was glad to dwell and through him to reconcile 
all to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, yes, things on the earth and also things in heaven. There's not destruction of things on earth so that the things in heaven can be all that is left. There is a reconciliation of things on earth and things in heaven. Okay? So, it's a lot of concepts, I know. But let's look at what the scriptures show us uh, about what this actually means if we play it out in our lives, in, in the world. Um, I think at this point, it's good to, to make, a, make a clarification about the fact that what we're, what we're talking about is future. <clears throat> we're talking about a new creation. We're talking about something that God's going to do that he hasn't done yet. So all of our language about it, short of what the scriptures tell us really clearly, but even in the midst of, uh, even what you get a lot from the scriptures is language that are sort of signs pointing into this kind of bright mist. Uh, We don't have always vivid photographs of exactly what's coming and exactly how we're going to get there. We have hints and we have hope. And uh, the the scriptures, even scripture we've already read tonight says, we hope for things that we can't fully see. Uh, we see in part right now. There will be a time when we see in full. So I'm not going to try to give you a detailed picture of heaven or new creation here on earth and say this is exactly how it's all going to look or, or, or everything that's going to happen. Um, there's a lot of good stuff that you can read if you want that we'll get into more detail, and I think really uh, with good foundations of what that might be. So the point here is not to get caught up in trying to figure out what it will all be like exactly, but the point is to understand the significance both of seeing the right signs of new creation coming and setting out our role in sort of setting out the right signs that point to the new creation, and ultimately that build for the new creation. So we want, we want to look to what God's going to do. We want to expect it and anticipate it, and we want to point others to it. Um, and it's important to understand this part of our faith. It's a part that has, I think, been largely neglected and replaced by none of it matters as long as we go to heaven if we die, when we die, right? Um, so we want to anticipate and be ambassadors of real Christian hope of what God is really going to do. So, a few scripture passages that talk about this. First is 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, But in fact, the Messiah has been raised from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since it was through a human that death arrived, it's through a human that the resurrection from the dead has arrived. All die in Adam, you see, and all will be made alive in the Messiah. Each, however, in the proper order. The Messiah rises as the first fruits. Then those who belong to the Messiah will rise at the time of his royal arrival. We get a farming image sort of from Paul here. He says that out of the resurrection, out of what God is doing to redeem creation, we already have one crop. We already have the first fruits of God's new creation, and that is the resurrected Messiah. That Jesus was first, but there will be more. That was not the end of the resurrection. That was not the end of new creation. Jesus is the first fruits of that. And if you start allowing this to interact and converse 
with the way that we tend to think, the way that the world tends to think, and, and converse with this idea of progress, the idea that we will eventually progress to what we need, uh, left, that, that progress alone, left, left on its own, would ever bring this about, is, is a fallacy. Progress alone would never bring about the kind of resurrection that we get from Jesus. No one claims it can. To, to completely be experience this kind of redemption, it requires the intervention and coming intervention of God. Okay? Further in this passage, Paul says, Then comes the end, the goal, when he hands over the kingly rule to God the Father, when he has destroyed all rule and all authority and all power. He has to go on ruling, you see, until he has put all enemies under his feet. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed because he has put all things in order under his feet. This is the next part of, of new creation. Jesus wins. He conquers everything, including death, all evil and death, come under fully under the reign and the authority of Jesus. And he hands the kingdom over to God new, redeemed, with, with evil and death no longer at work. This is the new creation. We have a realm, the scriptures tell us, coming with a resurrected Jesus, with his followers resurrected, Jesus first, then his followers, that is ruled by Jesus, where there's no evil, there's no sadness, there's no death. This is part of the new creation. In Philippians, Paul writes, we are citizens of heaven, you see, and we're eagerly awaiting for the Savior, the Lord, King Jesus, who is going to come from there. Our present body is a shabby old thing, but he's going to transform it so that it's just like his glorious body. And he's going to do this by the power which makes him able to bring everything into line under his authority. Here's kind of a how, here's kind of a what of that last text we heard. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that we're going to have a realm that Jesus reigns in where death and evil are no longer present, that he can hand over whole to the Father. In Philippians 3, Paul tells us this is what's going to happen as that transpires. He's going to come and take our bodies broken and, and even dead and transform them so that they're just like his glorious body. He's going to come from his realm in heaven to our realm in earth, on earth and do this. And he's going to do it by the power which makes him able to bring everything into line under his authority. The power of the cross and the resurrection. This is a next picture of that new creation. We're citizens of heaven living on earth. And Paul is writing to people in Philippi who had an understanding of this kind of concept because they were occupied. They lived in an occupied territory. They were a colony of Rome. And so this idea that, that power would come from outside and transform them locally made sense to them. But this is different. This is not Caesar. This is Jesus coming and making this realm like the heavenly realms. He means that the king will come from his home base in, the, in heaven to earth and change the situation and change the state of his people. And he will transform us to be like him, physically resurrected. He's not going to destroy the physical state of things. He'll transform it. In 1 Corinthians 15, we didn't go quite this far down, but in verse 28, Paul says, 
No, when everything is put in order under him, under Jesus, once Jesus puts everything in order and then hands it over to the Father, then the Son himself will be placed in proper order under the one who placed everything in order under him. Here's the key phrase. So that God may be all in all. This is part of what's happening in the new creation. Things are being transformed so that God may be all in all. God will fill all of his creation here with his presence and love. Isaiah talks about a time when this will happen. He says, They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, so that God may be all in all. This is what's coming to earth in the new creation. God intends to flood the whole universe, including this part of the universe, with himself. And it's like his creation was intended for this. It was intended to contain for his love, for his presence to fit into into it. And this also tells us something about the goodness of that creation, that it's good not just because it reflects God now, but because it points forward. The creation we live in now points forward. It is the space that God will fill where he will be all in all. Romans 8, we've already read most of this passage, but I want to show you the verse that precedes what we already read. He says, this is how I work it out. The sufferings we go through in the present time are not worth putting in the scale alongside the glory that is going to be unveiled for us. And then he goes on to give us this picture that he gives us of creation anticipating its redemption. And in verse 22, he says, the entire creation is groaning together and going through labor pains together up until the present time. There will be a new birth of creation, Paul's telling us. And it's not about the present creation being destroyed. It is about God coming and redeeming the present creation and making it new. And, and I wanted to come back to this, this text because it acknowledges that we suffer. It acknowledges that it's not all here yet and says, but all of that will pale in comparison. And, and I think the point here is at least in part that all of that will begin to make sense when we understand that this was all labor pain that this was all part of the creation groaning in anticipation. And so the new creation is not going to come into being all at once. We're not just living in the futility of our current lives and then all at once Jesus will come back and make everything right. There will be such a moment when it is finalized, when it is culminated, but we are on the march to that even now. And it's not a smooth march. It's not a smooth, progressive, evolving movement toward the kingdom. It has all the trauma and pain of labor and childbirth, contractions and groaning and all kinds of shocking and dramatic dimensions are part of the new creation coming into being. We do get a picture of the the ultimate in Revelation 21 and 22 as well, but I just want to read a few verses from 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride dressed up for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne, and this is what it said. Look, God, is coming. God has come to dwell with humans. 
He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or weeping or pain anymore since the first things have passed away. The one who sat on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, because these words are faithful and true. The new comes down from heaven to us, and there's a marriage is what Revelation tells us. This is radically different, I think, from the common scenario a lot of us have in our heads where the end comes and we all float off to the sky disconnected from our bodies. This is the answer to the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is God coming to dwell with us. It's the fulfillment of Genesis 1 where God promises that the creation of male and female will together bear God's image in the world. It's the final accomplishment of God's big plan for everything, the defeat and abolishment of death forever. And it tells us a few things. Heaven and earth aren't opposites. They don't forever separate in the end. They're different, but they're made for one another as a husband and a wife are made for one another, the scriptures tell us. Their destiny is not separation, but marriage. That's what's coming in the new creation. And in that moment, there's cause for hope and rejoicing just at, as at any wedding. Second, the big picture here is that God will be dwelling with his people, filling them and all of creation with life and love. That's part of what's coming. And then third, if you, if you read through Revelation 21 and 22, we get a hint of what we'll all be doing in new creation. We get a picture of what life there will be like. And, uh, and all I will tell you about that is it's not us floating around naked on clouds playing harps. That's not what life in the new creation when heaven comes to earth will be like. A couple of thoughts, uh, and then we'll shut it down till next week. First, I want to say, I know this can be disorienting if, if uh, it's different than what you understand about what Jesus is doing, what's coming, and you start to have questions about, well, where does heaven fit into that? What about people who have already died, who know the Lord? Uh, so I can't answer all those questions now, but a, a few things that I hope will be helpful. One, there is a heaven, um, and the essential teaching from the Bible is that Christians who have died are resting there now in the presence of Jesus. There's a lot more that could be said here, but I want that much to be clear. They will be caught up in the resurrection of new creation. Right now, they're resting in heaven in the presence of Jesus. Second thing I want to clarify um, is that Jesus is already, we're talking a lot about what's not yet when we talk about this. We're talking about a new creation that hasn't been completely fulfilled, and so we acknowledge that it seems like in this realm there are these places where Jesus doesn't yet have authority. Jesus is already king of everything. He is alive right now. He's not sleeping. He is alive and he has a body. He was resurrected in his body. Jesus is real, alive, and has a body. He is ruling from heaven and as new creation comes into being. And in the end, the Bible says he will appear uh, which it actually uses that term a lot more than it says he will return or he will come, but that he will appear among us and he will rule in person. And as heaven and earth are joined, his somewhat absent reign, as it seems to us now, will sort of dissolve into his literal presence where it's clear he has authority over everything in our physical realm. 
So he will be personally present. The dead in Christ will be raised and living Christians will be transformed. That's the picture we get. The last thing is there will be a judgment of the world. Not something we talk about a lot around here, but that's a good thing that there will be a judgment. A God who created a world that became broken, that became infested with evil, who intends to redeem and recreate it, must at some point separate what's good and what's evil. There has to be a culmination where that happens. He has to make a judgment about what is part of his kingdom and what is separate uh, from his kingdom forever. And when he faces a world full of sin and cruelty and blatant disregard for other humans made in his image, a God who is good has to judge that. He has to make judgments about it. And that, that should, I think, adjust some of our stereotypical view of judgment. The Bible says God's judgment causes the trees to clap their hands and the people to shout for joy. It's not how we typically think about judgment. But if we understand it as God coming to truly sift out evil once and for all, that's something worth rejoicing about. Um, that kind of judgment frees us from having to build the kingdom ourselves and empowers us to build for the kingdom because it tells us we know two things. We know that Jesus is the first fruits of whatever building we're going to do for the kingdom, which we'll talk about next week. Jesus is the beginning and the foundation of that. His, his cross and his resurrection are what all building is done on. And this also tells us that in the end, he will make it whole. So it's not ours to start the kingdom or finish the kingdom. We have a job in the middle to build for the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, According to God's grace, I laid the foundation like a wise master builder, and someone else is building on it. Everyone should take care how they build on it. Nobody can lay any foundation, you see, except the one which is laid, which is Jesus the Messiah. And that's what we're trying to do in joining Jesus on mission. I know this is a lot of information, maybe. A lot of it may feel like a lot of theology or... Um, something like that to you, but I think it's important for us to begin to redirect our minds to understanding the space that we're living in. If we're going to really be on mission, if we're going to be people who understand the mission of the church and participate in it in a way that really matters and really, really lasts, it, it, it is important for us to see what Jesus is doing, where he is taking things. So we progress in this hope toward new creation, with this understanding, I think that the central New Testament question and themes revolve around the promise that God's purpose is to rescue and redeem his entire creation. That includes you, that includes me individually, it includes our salvation, but we're not the only objects of God's action. We're part of that bigger picture. And part of the point of me being saved, of you being saved, of us being saved, is to participate with God in this larger purpose for his creation, to build for his now and coming kingdom. Let's pray. Father, would you enlighten our hearts? Would you give us <clears throat> clarity on who you are, what you've done, and what you intend to do in the world? Would you free us from just any bad information that we have, from any tendencies um, to believe things that aren't from you? And that doesn't mean that 
anything I've said tonight or whatever picture we can put together of, of what you've done and what you're going to do is infallible, certainly not. But we're eager to hear the truth from you. And so would you show us what you mean when you say Jesus is the first and you're going to do for us what you've done for him, that you're going to do for the whole creation in part through us what you've done for him and draw us in to your mission to redeem our own souls, our own lives, and to be participants with you as you do that in the world around us. And we pray all of that in Jesus' name, and we will attempt only to do that through his power. Amen.